I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ethan Hawke is now the villain in Moon Knight. Marvel snapped him up. Snagged him. They snatched him up. As they soon did. as he said it, they were like, let's get him. It's like it's like the mob, you know? They're they're just they get their fingers in everything. It really the next is. Next thing you know. The border expands and it just assimilates all actors into its maw. Yeah, Oof. it's some southern reach shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nothing you can do about it. So you said Daniel Day and Denzel. Mm-hmm. I wonder, though, is Ryan Gosling going to be one oh. of the last holdouts ever? Because, like, with Denzel, I could see it being, like, if the role is right, if he likes the director, I could see him being one, right. a guy. Probably more like a authority figure adding right. some gravitas to a right. superhero movie mm-hmm. but daniel day it's just like i mean the dude works so little he could miss out on an entire phase and like that would be the reason why right right he makes a movie every seven years so it, i feel like it barely even counts as him being in the game right but gosling gosling that is fair i mean he is a highly sought after actor extremely handsome i mean he could be literally any of the chris claremont x-men you know, I, I remember I was kind of not high on your idea of him as Cyclops, but now I'm kind of high on the idea of him as Cyclops. Dude, he'd be so good as like Hickman's version of Cyclops, yeah, right? Yeah, the very um assertive, aggressive. But he's a little weathered. A little weathered. Um, yeah. Very much more experienced. Uh, I could see that totally. Man, you sold me on it. Let's make it happen. I feel like he could be the last holdout because he's... He's such a weird troll in so many ways, you know? He's a silent troll. <laughs> he is. He takes such pleasure. I love Ryan Gosling. Yeah. I do love too. Uh, yeah. I'm excited whenever it is that he, you know, he's got a movie coming out. But yes, he is silently trolling 
he has so much like he has this great sarcasm about him where you don't feel bad about it but you see him talking about like nicholas winding Refn, and he just kind of will like glance at the camera like jim halbert like can you believe this shit we're doing right now <laughs> you believe how this mad dutchman is mixing his sex and violence right now actually he's danish he's not dutch my bad who, who else would oof now i i'm now thinking who else would be a holdout Mm. who's left that's the actual question man i don't know because it's like if marvel doesn't get you it's star wars oh man they just love to snap people up i i can't think of anyone man i was gonna say tilda swinton and i was like nope she's already been swallowed (laughs) up (laughs) right right it's like michael fassbender he seems like he has integrity oh no he's already played magneto four times never mind (laughs) you're right there's nobody yeah maybe gosling Jesse Plemons? No, okay. Kirsten Dunn. No, wait. She's already been in a comic book movie. What are you talking oh about? Oh, my God. She was in the first was one in the of first those. one. Oh, my God. No. She was there at the oh, ground floor. No. Yeah. Oh, this is scary. Oh, this is like a, this is like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. It's like name an actor. Nope. They've already been turned into a pod person. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Pretty soon it's going to be more like who's only been in Marvel or DC, right. who hasn't been cast in both. <laughs> you know? Right. Man. I'm going to be thinking about this for the rest of today. Yeah. Thanks, man. Ruining my day. Ruining my <laughs> afternoon. Are we trying to get into this? Let's get into it, man. All right. Let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Goat Season. So happy to have you with us. This is a podcast about the greatest seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and... Their creative teams, both in front of and behind the camera. I'm Phil Mitchell, and along with me is my co-host, Mr. Alex Sinesi. How you doing, dude? Doing fucking fantastic, man. Good to see you, Here man. Here to talk about a classic episode. Oh, yes. Oh, it's just got my juices flowing, bro. Oh, I can tell. I can. It just, oh. It's palpable. It's just, just exuding from you right now. <laughs> it's just it leaking is, through my pores. It is sweaty. <laughs> it's sweating over there. Hell I can, yeah, dude. Oh, there you go. What a great episode. I just watched it an hour ago, and then I'd seen it a week beforehand. And it's still, even though I know it's happening, it's still just as tense. It's it's hard to, like, analyze, right? You just mm-hmm. get so swept up in it. Today we're talking about episode 11 of the first season of The Sopranos, entitled Nobody Knows Anything, directed by Henry Bronctine. Yeah, yeah, Henry Bronctine. He has a really interesting backstory i figure we might even just jump into it before anything else go for it he came up through the late 1970s into the 80s basically working with all of the big new hollywood guys the very first time he was on a film set was raging bull he was a dga trainee on that yeah and then i mean he works with coppola and bogdanovich when they're sort of in the 80s in their mm-hmm. wilderness period. I uh, worked with Paul Mazursky a few times. I, I didn't realize he was so pedigreed. I mean, if you've already worked with Coppola, you've already worked with Scorsese. And then, like, I mean, that is incredible. Just the idea that he'd already worked with these big name directors and then is like, oh, yeah, let me try my hand um, at directing TV. I, I can see why or, or how the skill just like bleeds all the way through from these past experiences. Sure, sure. And you can see how Chase 
poached him for this particular show because he was like, I'm not making TV. I'm making the next new Hollywood, you know, cinematic creation, essentially. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although, you know, that's the thing, too, is he worked with a lot of these guys when they were really on the downswing. Like he worked with Coppola on The Cotton Club, which was such a oh troubled boy. production that basically got taken away from him you know i didn't realize that okay yeah they uh decided to uh cut out most of the um they essentially decided to uh take the black leads of that movie and make them not the lead characters what? in the edit yeah yeah <laughs> so the movie's a little weird <laughs> as a result they decided to switch main characters oh, for, wow. uh, I don't know, I don't know, maybe uh, possibly uh, racist reasons? That's just that's just a guess, you know? I'm just spitballing here. Who knows? It was the 80s. Right, right. Man. And he worked with Bogdanovich, like, post-Poly Platt, when he was really flailing, too. Uh, he worked on his movie, uh, and they all laughed, which is just an absolute train wreck catastrophe musical starring Burt Reynolds. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So he kind of worked with the new Hollywood guys when it felt like the dream had already died. Yeah, had already kind of fallen apart. I can see how he would transition into TV being like, maybe this is the next place that this is really going to happen. Maybe this is where the revolution is going to pick back up. Mm -hmm. He was the first AD on the pilot of The Sopranos. It's a, kind of a, a boring job. You're kind of the taskmaster. You're the guy who makes sure that everything is running smoothly on set. Everything's on schedule. You're, you're really, you're the organizer. And then he jumped from there over to being the unit production manager slash uh, line producer. I think he was line producer first, then UPM for the entire series, which is basically the guy who does that only with the whole budget of the show. Make sure mm. the show stays on budget, make sure he's allocating everything properly just so that the whole production can keep moving. So, I mean, it's a really stressful task. It requires a high level of organization and he, he clearly has a talent for it. But beyond that, he he really wanted to direct. And he said to Chase early on, give me a chance, man. Put me in, coach. And to start with such a big episode with so many moving parts. What a fantastic job. What a yeah. debut, right? To crush it like yes. this. I mean, but uh, yeah, he comes over to The Sopranos. He directs four episodes over the course mm -hmm. of the whole show. Not many at all. But the next one he directs after this is... Uh, from where to eternity in season oh. two really mm -hmm. really good episode too yeah and uh he's he's kept working as a upm he worked on uh david milch's uh luck that uh <sighs> ill-fated horse racing show yeah that got that canceled mid-production yeah. due to horse death oh that yeah. was a what a demise something about his particular skill set is this episode starts off and it immediately feels much bigger in scope mm -hmm. pretty much any episode before it i mean mm -hmm. certainly more than the past few episodes we've been watching it's like suddenly you've got all these locations all these extras the setting seems i mean it just seems so much more expansive yeah and uh, it really feels like he knew how to put his budget on the screen add a ton of production value to it what an episode. Oh, my God. He does, like you said, what a job he does no with it, man. Kidding. Yeah. The episode itself, want to get into that? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's start with the recap for That's sure. so good. Uh, I mean, like this whole episode, it starts off 
with just a few patient scenes at the very beginning. And then from there, just like once the feds show up, it's just like off to the races. The stakes. Yeah, the stakes are just Exactly. Yeah. We've got Big Pussy who has a back injury from too much action in a brothel. The guys give him a hard time for that. Almost immediately after that, Jimmy Altieri's club is raided by the feds. Altieri is booked. Pussy tries to escape, and then he gets scooped up and then released on bail. While that happens, um, or excuse me, immediately after that happens, uh, McKazian, one Vin McKazian, shows up. And I, I really like that scene. When he shows up and, you know, the weather is just cloudy and it looks stormy, feels like there's thunder approaching, and he shows up with just this bad news, this really horrible news, and he tells Tony, by the way, pussy's wired for sound. He's an FBI informant. You should be, you know, looking over your shoulder. The news tears Tony apart. Oh, it's such a good scene. It's dude. such a great... Every scene that Gandolfini is in... Oh, my God, yes. ...is yes. amazing. Yes, he's just... Uh, it's great. The atmosphere in that scene, the wind whipping at both of them, mm-hmm. and all this sound design, you hear, like, all of these um, seagulls and, like, rushing waves in the background... The way it looks, too, it has such a great late 90s Mm neo-noir vibe. It immediately made me nostalgic for those kinds of movies. And, uh, yeah, it it fucking nails it. It kind of has a a Miami Vice kind of feel in a way. Even though it's just, like, Florida. Yeah, Vice is Florida. But, like, yeah, it's Jersey. Not even close to being uh, geographically similar. But, yeah, somehow it just kind of has that vibe in that scene. That heavy atmosphere, Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and kind of the the stylization of it, too. When Tony walks away from Vin, uh, he's being led by a dolly, and his head is down, and, you know, his his face is just, like, in these shadows and these wrinkles, and you can just see the pain all over it as he's absorbing this news. And as you can tell, like, he's transitioned through denial, disbelief, and anger, and he's at this point where he's like, what Vin was saying makes sense to him, and Mm -hmm. that is just tearing him apart he cannot handle it yeah Yeah. um so just from there on every scene is a back and forth and an escalation at the same time tony he tasks paulie with spying on pussy silvio is also tasked with spying on vin mccasian tony is seeking counsel from melfi and then after vin mccasian is arrested in a brothel sting he suddenly commits suicide, um, jumps off of a bridge, and, and that's it. He's done. But that's not before I think that he and, and Gandolfini, John Hurd and Gandolfini, share like a very, very good one-on-one scene. I thought that that was a great moment uh, for, for Hurd to shine. I thought it was an interesting look into a character that I still find reprehensible, but you do kind of feel for him in that moment. Yeah, it's ah, see, you see, do. You've come you around do. a little I, bit. He's still a scumbag. Mm-hmm. He is still he is. a scumbag. But you do feel for the guy when he's half drunk talking about how lonely he is. But we can get to that oh, later. Yeah. When Jimmy Altieri uh, returns from the clink, Tony's pretty much convinced. Or I think he's really just trying to convince himself that actually it's Altieri who is the one that needs to be followed and then executed. Yeah, as soon as the option comes up that, oh, no, it could have been Jimmy so easily. It could have just been a mistake. Like, Tony just jumps at that. Because, of course, he doesn't want to think that Pussy's the rat. I mean, that goes through the rest of season two of of Tony just, like, looking for any excuse Mm -hmm. to believe that Pussy didn't actually turn. Exactly. 
so meanwhile, on the domestic front, Carmela and Livia have a scene together. I think it's a great scene where Carmela really does call Livia out on her shit. It's beautifully written and beautifully acted. There's great performances there. Then uh, we return to Livia later in the episode, and she discloses to Junior that all of the Capos have been meeting with Tony in the retirement home. And Junior, ever insecure, tasks Mikey Palmise with finding Hitman to kill Tony. It's amazing how she just keeps, she, she just continues to have all of this information that will just bring everything down and she doles it out perfectly she knows that she's gotten to just the point where she can push junior over the edge to kill her son yes it's a calculated move to have her son murdered yep she knows what she's doing it's oh it's my god crazy Oof. what's just like what's popping off the screen for you man oh man it's so much <laughs> So much, bro. Every single scene. Like you said, there's so many scenes that are just two actors in a room just trying to like tear down each other's defenses and get to the truth. And mm -hmm. it is always so powerful. One of my favorite scenes comes early on. It's between Tony and Polly. Mm, Tony yeah. is drinking whiskey. He's clearly just absolutely devastated by this whole news. I mean, when he says to Vin like him i fucking love him about pussy you know he he cares so much about his crew his family and it's like his anger makes him so much more sympathetic and then you get to this point where he's he's drinking and Polly comes in and tony tells him tony tells him first that pussy is probably a rat right and Polly, he can't believe it he's equally fucked up but then he just he gets really serious and he's just like I'll do it. Yeah. And God, I mean, that moment is incredible. Sirico yeah. in this, he's always, he's ever the soldier, but at the same time, like he's so fucking good in this episode. He's nailing these quiet moments in a way you never thought this guy would be capable of. Right. Yeah. yeah. Ah. I, I really like, I like both of it. Actually, I like Every single scene that he's in. I like every scene that everyone is in. That's yes. just what I'm going to say. Yes. Everyone is on point in this episode, and it's great. Sirico's fantastic. I love the just the range that he shows. Oh, um, yeah. it, can, it goes from like the quiet contemplation, like, all right, I'm going to have to kill one of my best friends. And then he becomes incredibly stern in the next sequence where you see him... Um, trying to get pussy to take his clothes off. Oh my God. That's tense as all get out. And then when he has to, so you know, tense. when Tony confronts him, he's quiet again and he's sort of cowed by Tony's, um, you know, rage and Tony's uh, distress. But he even plays that scene like kind of evenly, like, dude, get your hands off of me. Yeah. I will yeah. hurt you if I have to, but like, I'm just trying to do the right thing. I'm doing what you asked me to do. You see how he's still a guy who just isn't capable of being pushed around. Yeah. Like, he'll get to a point and he'll just be like, get the fuck off exactly. me. Even to his boss. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, what a powerhouse scene that is for Gandolfini. Holy shit, where he backs him up into the fridge. Yeah. Ugh incredible so man incredible so i feel like yeah. i could just talk about each one of these scenes because they're all so great but the they podcast are. would go on for 12 hours <laughs> yeah it would every single one of these scenes is a back and forth an exchange of power an exchange of 
truth and lies and mm -hmm. and there's just so there's so many dynamics it's so dramatic and it's so dynamic all the time and you're never sure where these characters stand you're never sure if they're going to end the scene up or down yeah if they're going to actually like find what they need or if yes. they're going to be uh defeated led astray lied to what have you yeah that early scene with Tony and Big Pussy with Vincent Pastore where he's in his house and he's sitting by him, his shoulder and his, the back of his head is so big in the frame. He's like crowding Pastore out of the frame. He seems so menacing as he's talking to him there. And like Pussy just he will not make eye contact with him. He's, mm -hmm. he's so troubled. And this is where Tony gets to the point where he's like, yeah, I'm 90% sure he's the rat just from just from talking to him, man, mm -hmm. just from talking to him over some fucking cannoli, cannoli. you know, I th that's <sighs> you make a really good point there when just talking about the the arc and the up and downs of each scene, because that reminds me of the scene where he's talking with Syl and Syl comes over and he says, Oh, yeah, guess what? Well, McKazian is, you know, he owes big pussy $30,000. And so there's kind of like this, like, Whew, okay, like McKazian's lying, of course. And then that scene ends with Tony uh, making a mention to another gangster who I think had also um, been an informant or something like that. And it, it, even then... Oh, yeah, Sammy Gravano. Sammy Gravano, yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. And so even then, like, Tony is just kind of like, uh, you're not off the hook yet. We still have to investigate this. So, like, the tension just continues. Like, what would have been just an easy way to get out of the door is just, no, you're, you're pulled back into this. You're, this isn't going to be so easy. Yeah, yeah. I love, too, how so many of the scenes will turn from, like, you'll have a comedic scene and then you'll just be right back into the high drama. Mm -hmm. Like, I love when Polly pulls up next to Big Pussy and he <laughs> hits his horn. His horn, the Godfather theme song. Godfather theme songs. <laughs> and then you go right into that incredibly intense scene where he's telling him to take his clothes off and you know that he's got that gun in his bag in the locker. Mm -hmm. he, he's just like ready to kill him at any moment there. Yeah. Or you have that great scene where uh, Tony is just kind of bickering with his daughter at the breakfast table, yes. talking about how out there it's the 90s, in here it's 1954. That was, uh, that was such a big quote in my house. Like, my dad loved to say that fucking line. <laughs> <laughs> you're really related to that one i think oh uh, that's too so funny your dad aped that scene that's so <laughs> out of all the lines in the show I know, that's right? the one your dad took from this that's the dream right that's <laughs> let's the have dream. your dad on we got to talk oh, about that man. yeah right <laughs> but you could go from a scene like that right back into the really heavy drama again it's really impressive and Absolutely. the show has done such a good job of threading comedy throughout so that it can have these characters be funny and then have things get so intense and it's all incredibly natural mm -hmm. i think narratively this is what you're hoping for by this point in this season this is what we become so used to seeing in other television shows which is you'll have a setup all of the narrative threads sort of like weave through and hopefully they're done well and then episode maybe nine or 10 or 11, you've got that rising escalation and you know that the point of climax in the story. And this is where we're at, right? Like this is from all of the scenes, all of these threads are starting to come together um, and, and, and really start to, to catch, uh, catch fire. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about it more in the next two episodes as well, but this really is the platonic ideal of 
the end of a season, the arcs coming together, the narrative ramping up into a climax. And it's incredible. It's yep. it's one of the best end runs of any show. I would ever, say so. In my yeah. opinion. I feel like you had a lot to say about John Hurd because you love Finn McKazian. Wow. <laughs> you know you want to. <laughs> Just the acid dripping <laughs> off that statement. Look, look. I'm no no fucking fan of law enforcement, all right? Let's just get that out of the way, all right? But this guy, the way John Hurd plays him, he's just such a raw fucking nerve mm -hmm. through this whole thing. I mean, his suicide scene is just, Oof. it's burned into my brain, dude. Yeah. I think in part because his anger, his frustration, and his despair... It's one of the most potent portrayals of despair I've ever seen on film. And it feels like it comes from such a truthful place. It feels like John Hurd is somebody who has weathered a lot of disappointment in his life, you know, and who has felt that cornered by circumstance. Either through his physicality, just his overall appearance, like he looks weathered throughout the show. He looks ratty and beat down. And that he is, you know, on his fifth marriage that's going bad as well. Mm -hmm. He looks like that type of man in the show. The thing that I think is so interesting about that scene is the fact that so much of his despair is covered up by his rage. He seems so angry. He seems so impatient when he's in the car and he's honking on the horn. And he seems like, okay, he just wants to just get through traffic. He's just being, you know, a, a dick, essentially. Yeah, rageaholic. Exactly. Totally. And then he, and I think this is just a, a, a testament to the directing, which is they don't give you really any time to think about what he's about to do. They might hint at it like, oh, okay, like, all right, like he's got his badge. And then like, it's just a few shots and then he is off of that bridge and it's over with. Yeah, another show would tip its hand way too much playing up oh he's looking at his gun mm -hmm. oh is he gonna like kill himself in the next scene and you see it coming so far ahead of time that it doesn't hit whereas in this it's so sudden where he just fucking walks up to that railing and goes off yeah it feels so real it's really yeah. disturbing i like the moment too where uh he shows the cop his badge which he takes out of this manila envelope clearly he knows he's already been fired and yeah. he's just on administrative leave but you know when he pulls his badge out and shows it to the uniform cop he he can't even look at him yeah it's it's sad his his identity is crumbling he also knows he's not going to be able to get information for tony so he's right. not going to be able to repay his debt that way he he's just, a dead he, man yeah he's out of options you know I'm reminded of the previous scene that he shares with Tony when Tony's at. It's an ugly, that's another one of those ugly scenes where you see Tony on his worst behavior, where he is just using a person and he just sees them as like a tool, an instrument to get where he wants. He's done this with Melfi in previous episodes and he's doing it with Vin McKazian in this specific scene where he's just like, give me the 302. I don't care that you're lonely. I don't care that, you know, maybe you don't have a family. I don't care, you know, how your day has been. Just get me this information. Then McKazian goes on to this, you know, really long discussion about how his father was abusive uh, and his family life. Like, he's really opening up to him. Tony does not care at all. Does not care. And the thing that gets me is at the very end of that scene is when McKazian says, you know, hey, I wouldn't have sex with any of these prostitutes in this brothel, not with your dick. And he talks about how all of the women in the institution are just trying to hustle you. And Tony says, yeah, like what else are they supposed to do? 
And I think that's just so emblematic of the two men right then and there. Tony just sees this as purely transactional, whereas uh, McKazian is hoping for connection with someone else that is beyond a tit-for-tat, a, a transactional type of relationship. And it's sad to see that he never gets that. But still, fuck him. <laughs> wow, right at the end there. <laughs> just had to twist the knife, though. That's great. <laughs> beautiful delivery <laughs> but look i mean yeah i just I, dude i can't help but dig into his humanity there like you say it's so much more pathetic that he is this frequent customer of a brothel and he's not interested in sex he just wants to pay these women to be nice to him so that he'll have some sensation of someone being like kind and not just treating him like a customer yeah, yeah, absolutely. Transactional. I mean, that was exactly the word that was ringing in my head, too. I love that part where he says, what about you, Tony? You ever feel like hiding under a bed? It shows how he's like too emotional in a scene where it's just odd in context. And I feel like it it leads to him being suicidal so well. This guy is unbalanced. He's too sensitive at moments where he shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting, too, because it's also... In that moment, he's asking Tony this really psychologically probing question, and it kind of gets at the central idea of the series, the central thesis of, like, can this man from this life, from these circumstances, gain the ability to be self-aware, you know, yeah. emotionally intelligent, introspective? Like, is Tony Soprano capable of that, you know, when he's confronted with mm -hmm. someone just saying... How do you feel? Do you have moments of doubt? Do you have moments where, where you need an emotional connection with someone? And he's just never able to quite make that last step to bridge that gap. And, and, and I think that's so interesting because what he's actually asking him is, can you empathize with what I've experienced? Can you yeah. empathize? Can you just step in my shoes just for a moment and like recognize how awful it must have been? to see your dad chase after your mom in that type of way and to go hide and like, you know, want to be safe. And Tony fails that test miserably. Like he just says, yes, you're telling me this story. Now I want to hide under my bed. And so right. I think this that's is just, awkward. Let me this make is a joke. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that is, you're right. It is the thesis of the show. And that's what's going to end up being played out throughout the course of the series yeah yeah and the way that melfi is being used by tony in this episode is another example of him just being like look i need to get something out of this that is practical to me i need to get advice for a specific problem that i had and i'm gonna use your tools as a therapist to see my way through it to see if i can figure out if pussy is lying and you know when she she mentions secrets mm. being a possible reason for his his back problems it cuts into this really tight close-up on gandolfini which is it's tighter and shallower than they've ever gone in a therapy scene before and i mean that's just that moment where he's like oh yeah that's that's the key and it breaks his heart but it's a moment of clarity but uh, as you say it's him using talk therapy totally for his own ends yep yep that is exactly, yeah, that we talked about that before, how that end up, ends up being the undoing of his therapeutic relationship with her. Yeah. Man. It's just so impactful, though. God, every time they cut to Gandolfini's face, he's just doing such incredible work. I agree. 
I agree, man. It's a treasure, man. He really <laughs> is. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. So uh, should we talk about like uh, Livia and Junior a little bit so, more? Yeah. I mean, yes, because on a rewatch, I was mm. thinking... What's going on here between these two? At first, it just seems like two cute old people that are just kind of like hanging out, chilling, getting, you know, blue plate specials, that sort of thing. And I thought to myself, maybe halfway through, maybe by episode six or seven, I was kind of like, man, Livia seems to really enjoy Junior's company. Junior, he's visiting her, but he has his own relationship, as we've talked about before. He has this his own connection with this other woman. It was Roberta, I think. Yeah, he's got something else going on. Livia seems to really hang on to her connection with Junior, I think, and for two reasons. One, for the the emotional intimacy that she clearly does not have with anybody else. And then two, because it allows her to dominate her own, like, sliver of the world. She gets to manipulate and thereby control. She is the boss of the boss, right? She is the power behind the throne. This is the first time in this series where I think they make explicit the possibility that she is carrying a torch for junior or has been and she's too ashamed to admit it yeah yeah i think so man i mean it sets up both of them as being in this state of longing for a true connection because the first time you see junior too he's staring out at the strippers at the bada bing while everyone else is sitting around a table doing their meeting stuff and he's just looking at these strippers and then he kind of looks away and shakes his head and you realize oh yeah man i mean he hasn't been with uh bobby in a while now he's ended that the dude's horny and uh he he doesn't have that connection anymore and then you cut over to livia and she's wearing makeup Makeup. and uh carmella comments on it and it's like oh yeah both of these characters are longing for a new romantic connection she's lost her husband he's lost his guma and uh it uh it seems like it would evolve into that possibly if livia didn't blow it up by essentially like pushing junior into war yeah carmella brings up the idea of her just having 
she puts it as companionship. You know, right. she tries to like gently talk around the idea and Livia just freaks out and does all of her fake crying and mm -hmm. is like, what you think I would besmirch my Johnny's name by shacking up with his brother? So much insecurity there yeah. that she's covering for. She just, she's, she's so defensive about the idea of it. She can't even entertain it. Man. And I, I think that's just that generation, man. Oh, the Sopranos, they just have a hard time talking about their feelings and being vulnerable. <laughs> they can't yeah. do it. No, no. I like uh, Carmela in that scene, though, because she does not give any quarter. No, she's like, I'm actually going to really just talk straight to Livia for yep. once, because nobody does. And yep. she's so sick of them holding her hand through all this shit while she's being so terrible, while she's causing Tony so much grief, so much agita, as they say. Yeah, and I think it's because Carmela's pissed that uh, Livia didn't show up to her open house dinner. And I she's know. like, I'm going to go and I'm going to like give this bitch a ricotta pie and then I'm going to stick the knife in. Yes. She does yeah. it so well. I love the fact that Livia starts to cry and Carmela's having none of it. None she of does it. not even fall for it. She's just like, oh, God, she's just doing the crying thing again. Yeah. Not falling for it. Oh, man. Just other little interesting things. So um, in the scene where Tony and Vin McKazian meet up at the water's edge there where he first tells him that pussy is wired for sound. Uh, I was uh, listening to an interview with Henry Bronstein where he was talking about that scene and how in the script it had said that Tony grabs Vin when he tells him this information. Mm. And David Chase saw that moment in the shot and he was like, oh, what's that doing in there? Tony would never grab a cop. That's assaulting an officer. He's just too smart to ever like think to do that. And then Henry Bronte was like, well, man, it was in the script. And uh, so I think David Chase was kind of like, ah, well, you fucking got me with that one. But uh, he cut around it. He made him use the take uh -huh. where it happened late in the scene. And then he cut around it. And Bronte kind of laments that decision because he said there was a lot of good performance energy when Gandolfini grabs him in the wide shot. He does that so often where he's so physical with other mm -hmm. characters in a scene. And it's mm -hmm. so, it just, adds so much energy to it absolutely uh, but he said that's what was important to chase was in the end to make it that realistic to make it exactly how that would go down in this world was a priority for him over even like the performances in that wow. moment man i would have really liked to see what some of that other footage looked like oh dude Doesn't i know i'd love so... to yeah just to watch the dailies from that yeah yes. yeah just to watch the raw footage of those takes i'm sure it was all incredible oh man you were texting me about the 11th episode mm. in many a show. I think I understood what you were talking about, just like how they tend to now be, again, rising action. But yeah, what were you getting at specifically? Well, we talked about this a little before, how the Sopranos in this season in particular innovated with the idea that the big climactic scene, the big moment of danger for the main character comes in the penultimate episode of the season and then like after that the finale is more like we're gonna sort of 
take our foot off the gas just a little bit and we're going to really wrap up all of the story threads that we've got. That the the final episode, as opposed to being like nonstop climax leading up to a cliffhanger so that you'll come back, you know, and watch the next uh, season of the show when it when it's back on the air, which is kind of the network move up until this point. The Sopranos was like, no, we're going to like have the final episode of the season really just sort of be an extended denouement, be an extended resolution, kind of a third act to the whole season. And I think you see other shows cribbing that format and the 11th episode, I didn't really realize till I was watching this again, but the 11th episode can be sort of key to that whole structure too, because the 11th episode is the one where their dramatic tension gets ramped up. It's prior to the actual climactic scene that'll come in the next episode but episode it's 12 yeah 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 but it's the the moments where the characters start to get much more emotional much more raw and you have them really like butting heads and uh coming to these points where essentially they are out of options they've emotionally reached a mm -hmm. point where they're just they're they're gonna make an irrevocable decision mm -hmm. one that came to mind was uh in season five of mad men the 11th episode of that season is where Peggy leaves Sterling Cooper oh, Draper that's right. Price. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it precedes bigger episodes in terms of Don and Megan's marriage dissolving mm -hmm. and, and all of the stuff that happens in the last two. But the 11th episode is really the one where there's this big dramatic turn where Don is sort of pushed into this place where these really emotional decisions are happening. Yeah. Yeah. Breaking Bad kind of did that every single season. Right. The right. 11th episode would always fall into that because they love to do that structure where they have the big crazy shit go down in the penultimate episode. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that really comes to mind because it's my favorite season of Breaking Bad is in season four. Episode 11 is Crawl Space. Oh, man. Which, what an ending. Yeah. I, yeah. The long. Oh, wow. That long talk about Cranston. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Man, in the in the crawl space. Right. Laughing right. maniacally. Yeah. Oof. Because he realizes he's hit the point of no return. Yeah. And that's that's where these characters are at. I remember <laughs> seeing that live. What an episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. I can't wait. We got to do that season. Man. I know. They uh, make a good point. Yeah. Just the idea that this is a, a, a format that then is followed by other television shows. I mean, Game of Thrones um, mm -hmm. follows this format. I don't really know if it's like episode for episode because I don't remember how many episodes Game of Thrones usually did. I don't remember if it's usually like 12 or 13. Either way, the point being is just that, yeah, by episode 10 or 11, you are ramping up tension in preparation for the climax of the entire season. Yeah. For sure. For sure. I just want to shout out the camera work in this episode too. Yes. Alex Sakharov is doing such a good fucking job again. Mm -hmm. Tons of really cool uh, dolly shots, sliding mm -hmm. characters into scenes, leading characters, the characters walking toward camera as they're sort of walking through a space with all of these heavy emotions, with all these pretentious decisions weighing upon them. The, the move that I really like, though, is when Tony is in the basement with Jimmy. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I know yeah. where you're going with this, but go ahead because yes, it's my favorite. Yes. It's my favorite too. Yep, go for it. <laughs> with, with Jimmy Eltieri, who we talked about earlier, how like, this actor is just so bad. They eventually came on, let's just make him the rat, where it's like, you don't believe a fucking syllable that comes out of this dude's no, mouth. No, you don't. Ever. No. And we're going to use that 
we're going to weaponize that and make him the obvious clumsy informant who just can't wait to out himself uh-huh. <laughs> as having been turned by the government to become oh, a cheese-eating motherfucker. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, the movement is so cool where Tony is looking at Jimmy as he talks about FBI fingerprinting techniques yeah. that are going to like pull the fingerprints right off the stolen money they've got. And uh, the camera glides past Tony in profile and he turns around and he turns around in opposite movement, opposite movement. Yep. with the way that the camera is going. And you realize, oh, fuck, he just... He just made a decision. Yes, he yeah, just made a decision. Exactly. Yes. He That's made a decision. So good. As he says later, I should have killed him in my right oh man he was ready to and the camera helps communicate that so well i love that moment i think that's probably my favorite moment in the episode just because of that one shot yeah just that decision Mm -hmm. yeah so good work it's funny too jimmy's talking in there i don't know if you clocked this how he talks about the colombian getting whacked and then getting a suitcase of money that's like the one bit of narrative thread from a hit is a hit that leaves <laughs> that that episode existed. <laughs> if not for that, I, you could dude. That's so funny because I, when I was watching it today, <laughs> yeah. I I remember I was listening to him say those lines and I was like, wait, who is he referring to? Because that sequence of them murdering that guy at the beginning of that episode seemed so detached from anything else happening i had forgotten that they'd murdered a dude at the beginning of the last episode i have no idea what this even what this guy's even talking about (laughs) but yeah apparently that uh actually does have um some weight to it Mm -hmm. barely any just another little moment i i noticed i don't know this could be reading into it too much but i did find that there are so many moments in the episode that are just designed to have you going back and forth doubting yourself about whether Mm -hmm. or not pussy is the rat the the episode is so well constructed so that at every turn you can be like wait why did why did he do this why does pussy walk out of the party right as christopher and paulie are talking about him to tony about talking about how his back stuff is all bullshit and he walks very close by them out of focus but he's saying to his wife oh we we need to go home right now Mm -hmm. is he just oblivious because he's in so much pain or was he walking that close to like listen in and listen in and on what they were see, saying yeah yeah if he could tell what they were saying about him and it, it makes you you doubt it makes you wonder like yeah. which way is this gonna go okay so the the moment though that comes later that i felt like i don't know maybe i'm just i'm getting too too deep into it maybe i'm reading too much in but uh pussy's walking away from satrials he's walking away from the rest of the crew and paulie is watching him through his car windshield and pussy walks by a sign that says American club members only. And he's leaving and he's mm. passing it by. And I'm like, oh, is that is that what they're saying here? Like this American club, as in the Italian-American version of the mob. Oh. And he's not a member anymore. He's not a member anymore. Gotcha. He's been turned. He's with the FBI. He, yeah. He's not mm-hmm. on their side. And I he's see. leaving and passing it by. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You know, you can make an argument for that. Could have just been a random bit of set decoration, but you see it yeah. and you think, uh, you know. It makes you think. I'm going to, yeah, I, I, I like the idea of what you're saying there with how the episode plays on your own uncertainty. Because even when watching the episode a second time, when the FBI raids altieri's place 
there are some moments where when you you're watching and it almost seems as though pussy knows what the fbi is there for and where they're going to find it and almost seems it's not like he's like leading them to it but he's just kind of like i'm not going to say anything but i'm just going to let you all find what i think you already know i don't know if that makes any sense but it's just like he, he seems like he is it's hard for me to explain he he, he is um i don't know like it, yeah, you go back and forth on a moment-by-moment basis. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Pastore is so well cast for this role because there's something about his line delivery. It has a certain kind of like affectless quality to it. On the one hand, it kind of always sounds like he's telling the truth. And yet also you can't really tell what the feeling is underneath his words. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. in all of these moments, you're like... Is he totally on the level or is he saying this stuff on autopilot while really he's just right freaking out internally? Like, you can't tell. Even his yeah, and even his defense of his son, like even when Tony says, you know, hey, your son could go to city college, like he just blurts out and explodes. There's no way my son is gonna, you know, get fucked like his old man. Like he's gonna go to like a good school. Like he just explodes there, and it seems as though it just doesn't even seem proportional to the moment. Like, man, he seems really upset yeah. about this one specific thing. Is he really upset about the fact that his son might go to a state school? Or is he just kind of, you know, um, really stressed out about something else? Yeah. Yeah. And and family is that, that red line, you know? That's the mm-hmm. thing they say. These guys, they can't do this kind of time. Yeah. They, they got a family to worry about. And he's like, I pray that tuition money just keeps coming in. You know, that's mm-hmm. his his main fear. Man, <laughs> what an episode. Oh. I could talk day in and day out about this episode. It's so great. Seriously. After the last few more experimental episodes, you see everything just start to get tied back together. Everything ramping up with, with such a tight focus. And it's so impressive but at the same time i'm i'm again struck by how the show has done the work over every single episode to make you buy into all of these characters into their relationships with each other so that when things get to this point where it's everything is like life or death you just you feel so strongly that like yeah tony cares about these guys so much loyalty is so important to him family is just everything to these guys and these relationships are palpable after you know just this brief time we've been with them yeah just 10 episodes and it's kind of like man he is torn apart by the thought that of breaking up his family yeah 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 Oof. <laughs> i just like that mikey's wife is the absolute worst <laughs> i felt bad for her i actually did really I, there was a I, I, yeah, you know, I, there was something about this woman upon, you know, just watching her, she's making some dinner. She's, you know, in the kitchen, she's attending to the domestic side of life. Paul Meese comes in and he's just a jerk the entire time, man. He just comes in and he's like, Hey babe, I got this new like kitchen appliance. Like you should be happy for that. Why aren't you happy for that? Meanwhile, she's like, Hey, we should go on a date and we should go out of town and have a nice weekend. And he's like, don't worry about that. We got to murder someone. Like, come on, man. <laughs> come on, He is dude. so much more excited about murder yes. than a vacation. Yes. Oh, man. Dude, his idea of a vacation is a murder. 
Come on. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I didn't really feel bad for her, though, man. I don't know. I mean, she made that decision. She's lying in those bits. Like, come on. Because immediately I mean, still, though. he talks about a promotion and she's like, yeah, well, I need a new car. So she I hope this that, means yes. more money and all this shit. And yes, uh, she's just you can tell she is. She's just like drain and drive every <laughs> everything she can get out of this situation. She's going for it. Oh, oh man. Oh, boy. Notable scenes. Oh, I mean, we've talked about so many already. It's really yeah. fucking hard to pick a favorite scene from this episode, Fair. though, dude. Fair. Oh, man. I I think, for me, it's the first scene where Tony is sitting in the bing, drinking whiskey, and Polly comes in, and Tony tells him that pussy, you know, is wired. That scene between them is so powerful. I love how they both underplay it. It's a really amazing scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about you? What's your favorite I, scene? I, so again, I am a, a sucker for memorable images. And so I think you are, we already talked about the, just the shot where the paint, the camera is gliding past and Tony pivots in the opposite direction in the basement. I think that's just like the most memorable shot in the episode. And then there's the final um, shot of the of the episode, which is Tony standing on the shore near the bridge and the barge is just going by. And that's just like a well-composed shot. It's Tony in the foreground. The sky is just like this unique kind of like orange kind of like evening color. Like everything about that shot is well composed um and so yeah that just that struck me as well it's a beautiful shot and the mm -hmm. looks so imposing and it's yeah. you know again this symbol of crossing the threshold from life to death which vin mckazian did so literally with this bridge yeah. earlier in the episode yeah yeah and it's showing i mean tony's right there he's right on the edge of death because his yep. uncle has decided to, to kill him. him yeah yep and it's so interesting because this reminds me of what two episodes three episodes ago, where um, Tony and Christopher were talking about suicide specifically, like, would you ever do this? And they were both kind of like, no, nah, like, we would never do that. Clearly, they've both thought about it. Yeah. That scene, that last shot did make me think about the discussion that he had had with Christopher totally. and how they're both in denial about, you know, their deteriorating uh, mental health. <sighs> yeah. I got to give Melfi an A. She's there. I mean, she only has one scene. But she's fantastic throughout. I think she calls Tony out on his BS. Like, you know, hey, we don't have to talk about your friends. You need to focus on yourself. She does a great job there. So I give her an A. Good job, Melfi. Nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah, she and, she and Tony feel very much at odds in this episode. She can kind of tell that he's just trying to, like extract some useful information from her and she's she's definitely pushing back and trying to get things back on a therapeutic level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You want to do some rankings? Sure, man. Yeah, you yeah. You want to? Yeah, yeah. All right. You want me to go first or you? Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. You go ahead and go first. Oh, God. All right. I'll go first. All right. <laughs> here we go. So at number five, I've got Carmella. I think Edie Fowler. So again, this episode is a masterclass in acting, I think, as well. Like we've talked about the directing and how well it is and how, again, I think it is. Um, returns to the language of the show, which we've talked about before. But I think, again, all of the acting, I don't think that there's just like a weak, outside of the guy who plays Jimmy Altieri, which is played in the best way it possibly could be, everyone else is just so solid in this episode. So I got to give props to Carmela Edie Falco for really handing Livia 
the shit. She's just not she's not taking anything from her, and she does it so well. Um, and I think it's a great moment for the character too, because for the most part, Carmela is just putting up with Livia's nonsense. Um, and just in that episode, she's just not having any, and it's 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 gratifying. You want to see Livia suffer a little bit, and so yeah, she's it feels good to see Carm get a victory. She is she is serving in that scene. Yeah, absolutely. she really is. Yeah, mm-hmm. serving up some cold dishes. Oh Oof. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think, like you say, you know, it, we talked about the directing, and I think so much of the directing, though, too, to credit uh, Henry Bronstein again, is that he set these scenes up so that all of these performers could just score buckets Mm -hmm. every Mm -hmm. single time he knew what they were capable of and he's like i'm just going to give them as many opportunities as i can to to just execute on this really high level we know they're capable of number four i've got vin mckayzie and john hurd the guy is probably in five total scenes throughout the course of the season this is a showcase. This is the one where he really shines. This is the part where, you know, he gets to really, we really get to see who the character is. He is one part scumbag and he is also one part really lonely guy. And it's really sad to see, but I think Hurd plays that so well. And he gives the character such a great range that we didn't know existed before and gives him such depth. Yeah. I got to give him at number four, Ben McKazian, RIP. Yeah, man. Hardly knew you. (sighs) I mean, as you said, he's not even in this season that much. And yet to me, yeah. this is absolutely the definitive John Hurd performance. Just a, just a great performance of a guest actor on a TV show ever. I mean, it just has stuck with me so much in all the time since I've seen the show. I still think about this character who is only in four episodes in the very first season. And that was it. So memorable. Mm-hmm. And- The other thing to think about is just the fact that the character just feels like one more. He's just one of the first few bodies that Tony just kind of like leaves in his wake. And like, this is not the first person who's going to die tragically. He is not the last. It's, it's just sad all around. It makes me think of a great Melfi line from season two, where she says to him, how many people have to die for your personal growth? Oh man. Yeah. Vin McKazian on the altar. Oh, Mm -hmm. At number three, I've got Big Pussy slash Vincent uh, Pastore. Um, again, for almost the same reasons um, as John Heard. Like, his performance is fantastic. I think he does a great job of depicting just the stress under which Pussy is just, like, collapsing. And it's not just... I think it's really good physical acting, too. Like, even though it can be played for laughs, he looks tortured throughout the episode he looks so uncomfortable and i i think he does a, a fantastic job um and in this episode yeah he does he really looks in pain in a lot of these scenes and then that moment where he backs Polly up in the uh the sauna the schwitz mm-hmm. is really strong you know mm-hmm. as much as i talked about how his delivery can be sort of flat in a way that really works for the character and that scene he really gets angry and it's so believable. It really brings it. And it feels like that, that scene is so sad because it feels like the inverse of so many of the ridiculous adventures that he and Polly have had in the earlier episodes, oh, right? so true, man. Oh, man. Oh. Like, at the first two, like, in, within the first three episodes, they're, like, going to go get coffee, and they're talking about Italian-American heritage, and Pussy is giving them a hard time. And, like, they feel like these two brothers who are at odds with each other, and then to see this happen between the two of them just feels so... 
it's just breaking your heart, man. Yeah, it is. Ah, my heart broke so many times for these uh. guys, for these <laughs> sociopathic, <laughs> lumbering, <laughs> brutal cogs in this organized crime machine, man. And yeah, Oof. ah. At number two, Livia. Great performance by Nancy Marchand. Of course. I don't even feel like there's anything I could really say about her that we haven't already said. She just delivers. <laughs> she she does. just delivers. She is like the ma- she is the mailman Monday through Friday and even on Saturday. She just delivers. She is so good too at just fucking just dropping a bomb and then covering up after herself right after it. You know, when mm-hmm. she says this stuff to Junior and really gets him freaking out about all the capos in the retirement home. And then she turns around and she's like, I don't like being put in the middle of things. Yes. Yeah. I wrote that line down and I was like, what? <laughs> yes, you do. Of course you do. <laughs> Clearly. You, want. Uh, you are so. You cannot. Yeah. Oh, yes. She cannot gain any emotional intimacy through normal channels, so he just has to, like, stir up shit so that anyone will, like, pay attention to her. It's disgusting, and you cannot look away. And Yeah, exactly. It is. She is a, a human car wreck, and it's true. She, she, she is so furious. She is so homicidally angry about the fact that she has been isolated and put in this nursing home so that she is not in the middle of things. That is what has driven her to kill her own son. And she turns around and gives us that line. (sighs) Livia. Oh my gosh. So vexing. All right. At number one is Tony. Gandolfini's performance. He just knocks it out of the park. Totally. There's so much depth. There's so much range. He goes from being like one of the guys, one of the crew, hanging out in the bada bing. They're having a good time. They're having laughs. By the end of the episode, he is breathing heavy and he looks defeated. He just looks like a caged animal and has nowhere to turn, um, but is just like seething with rage and like just un- just does not know what to do. Yeah, I, I loved every scene that he was in. Um, really enjoyed the performance there. Yeah, he is so powerful, man. I mean, he can just back up anyone with the forcefulness of his character and uh i mean obviously it's one of the greatest performances in the history of television but it is still striking to see oh yeah in season one he was already delivering on that he had developed this character so fully and in these moments uh, he's incredible i mean no one else Mm -hmm. could do this who's your five man oh all right Again, again, going a bit of a different way with my power oh, I know rankings. You, are. you know, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, at number five, I'm going to have a Schwitz. All right. Okay. Because on the one hand, sounds super fucking relaxing. You know, you get your, your steam bath, your heat, maybe a massage after you really were able to relax. But then as Big Pussy points out, hey, I got high blood pressure. I could go in there. I could fucking check out. Not to mention, I could also just get shot in the head right now because I'm wearing a fucking wire. So maybe it's not such a good way to relieve stress, you know? Maybe it's not so relaxing. Yeah, yeah. So then at number four, I got cannoli and coffee. As Tony says, maybe you're suffering from a cannoli withdrawal. And as an Italian, I feel that there's so many times where I just wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, I could fucking cannoli right now but you know like what there's no bakeries around me serving late at night there's no way to get that shit and you uh, what you think the fucking food lion around the corner is gonna have good cannoli i don't fucking think so man so i sense a theme here yeah so cannoli and coffee is just like 
that's something that'll just like take the edge off of a really tough day. And I just, I felt that so much. Okay. So like after the stressful schwitz, you go for the cannoli and coffee. Right. right exactly. Okay. There you All right, go. I'm following you here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, at number three, just straight whiskey. Mm, yes. You got Tony drinking his uh, Johnny Walker. And uh, at the end of uh, the scene, you know, with the, Polly getting knocked back in the fridge. Uh, Silvio is like, ah, let's all have a drink. And he's pulling some like highball glasses out of his file drawer. I mean, that is something clearly these guys go to to take the edge off. And it, it works in the way that it, it dulls the pain down into just sort of like a sad, angry throb beneath the surface. Clearly, it's not fixing any problems, but it's something that they can turn to to at least take that edge off of it. Absolutely. All right. And and then uh, at number two, I've got uh, Debbie's high class brothel. Because I mean, oh. that is just a place to go, yeah. apparently. Like, whatever your proclivities, you know, you can be a Dr. Mop and Glow getting up to some kinky shit, you know, a real specialist customer. Or you can just be John Hurd, who just wants somebody to uh, hold his hand and uh, pretend to be nice to him for an hour out of the fucking day. Maybe let him take a nice shower. It seems like a place where uh, you can just uh, let go of your worries, you know, some place where everybody knows your name. What an institution. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Seeing it, I'm like, wow, in this nice ass house. And uh, Debbie just seems like she's so classy in her like gold kimono and all that. And I'm like, this this cannot be like actually mob affiliated. This is just too classy right. for these guys, right. you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is I was like, yeah, this place. This place does seem rather genteel. Right, right. I don't know what to make of this? I was confused. This seems like an independent startup. Right. This isn't. Uh, <laughs> this isn't something they would have their hands in. No. And then at number one for taking away the pain, for taking away your problems, I have to go with jumping off the Donald Goodkind Bridge. <laughs> Because uh, clearly there is nothing in this fucking episode that does it better <laughs> as far as just getting all of these fucking issues you're dealing with off the table than to just take a header off of this goddamn bridge, you know? You went there. All right. See, I thought yeah. you were going to say Percocet, but all right. <laughs> nope. You no, we're going for up. the hard shit, dude. Oof. Okay. All right. <laughs> Man, oh man! All right, I know, I know. <laughs> Bit you of got a dark note power. to end on, but hey, no kidding. But yeah, just just going by the prescribed amount of painkilling of each of these things, you know. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. That's your your power ranking right there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Is it time for the name of that episode? Oh shit! I guess so, man. I I don't even want to stop talking about this episode. I, I don't even want to get past it. I actually, before we get to name that episode, I will go what? back and say one more little thing that I just What's thought that? was really interesting. So this is an example, a rare example on this show. This almost never happened, where an actor requested a line to be changed. And oh, was, I know where. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. you heard about this, Tony Rico. Tony Sirico yeah. mm -hmm. asked that a line be changed in a scene that he wasn't even in. That's what I thought was so fascinating. It was like he just didn't want other characters talking about him in this context, which is that Debbie originally was supposed to say that Vin McKazian thought that Paulie was a bully, and he so 
objected to that. He's so objected to the idea that he would be thought to like bully people despite all of his pugnacious behavior, despite him being a mobster and shaking people down. He he just like he really objected to that. And I could see it. I could see him being like, no, no, I'm the guy who like is a ball buster, but everybody comes away feeling all right about it. And it just like it so clearly was anathema to him as a person because he yeah. plays Polly as such a thinly veiled version of himself that that I think would have fucked with his whole idea of the character. And he, yeah. he had to say, no, you got to change this. And so they change it to psycho. psycho. <laughs> was, okay, fine. That's great. I can deal with that. That's so much better. What an amazing note, though. It just says yeah. so much about his process, about his Ooh. take on the character, about yeah. how he was able to play this this very specific person. And that uh, is so funny. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That yeah. is so funny. Yes, I, you're right. I didn't think about that <laughs> in terms of the fact that he's not even in the scene. He's not even present at all. It's just right. someone else talking about him. He's so far removed from it. I mean, Sirico read the script and was just kind of like, mm -mm, Exactly. No <laughs> Normally an actor does this when it's like, I don't want to say this line. Exactly. I don't want to, exactly. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of this. Right. I, I, nothing I don't to do know with how this. to perform this particular piece of dialogue. Can we please change it? He's like, no, no, no. This character in this other scene, you got to change that shit. I don't want her saying this about me. Right. Anyway. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, it's uh, a great story. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah. Uh, uh, so all right. I just I couldn't let it go without. Thank you. I I'm glad you remembered that. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Are we doing this? It's name that episode. Okay. Okay. Name that episode. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Back. Back to business. Absolutely. <laughs> back to. Here we go. <laughs> Serious business. All right. This season three episode of The Sopranos was directed by Dan Adius and written by Imperioli. In this episode, AJ gets grounded, Adriana opens up a club, and things heat up between Tony and Gloria Trillo. They heat up, but they don't reach their their absolute climax yet, I believe, right? That would be in the episode Amor Fu. But this, written by Imperioli, mm -hmm. I think this is the Telltale Mutzadel. Oh, nah. yes, you got it, ladies and gentlemen. Woo! Yeah. He is so happy with himself. Oh, right man. Yeah, that yeah. episode's all right. The one thing it's I remember a, is um, Lady Gaga is an extra in that episode. Did you hear about that? What? I did not yeah. hear about that. Yeah, she wow. was like 16, still going by uh, Stephanie Germanata. And uh, wow. yeah, she shows up as like one of Meadows' friends. I don't that think she even has a line. Crazy. That woman no. has lived a charmed life, and I root for her every single day. Good for her. She has, but man, I mean, her talent, dude. She's incredible. Ah, I love Off her the so charts. much. Yeah. Exactly. We're fans. It's true. Ready for number two? Let's do it. All right. I'm switching this up on you. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. I don't know if you're going to be able to handle this. Uh, Here we go. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> In this season two episode of Arrested Development, oh. Job's wife files for a divorce and Buster's hand is bitten off by a seal. Oh, fuck. The seal episode. Oh, my God. Nice, dude. I didn't even think of Arrested Development. Fuck. Ah, uh, oh, man. Okay, okay. So, is this the episode with Martin Short? Ooh, boy. Um, mm, mm, I don't see anything that is indicated, but mm, I can't say for certain. I don't want to give you that. Damn. Yeah, I don't want to give you that one because I feel like I would. I, I could either 
be sending you down the wrong the wrong road there. Oh no! But I can't confirm or deny. Oh fuck! <laughs> uh, all right. Um, is it afternoon delight? It is not. God damn it! Ah, but that episode I do believe is in the same. Season. Yeah, yeah, it's totally yeah. season two. Afternoon uh, delight's uh, amazing. Yeah, it's a great episode. Uh, fuck. Um, hmm. <laughs> trying to think of other episode titles from that season. It's not Sad Sack, right? Nope. No. Nope. And I believe... Hmm. This The title is related to Buster and his hand. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the hint. Shit. Um... It's not ready a marry me, right? No, man, you were just working your way up through the titles there. Fuck, fuck. Okay, so it's about Buster's hand. Yeah. Oh, God. This is episode 11 of season two. And I wanted to say it was like burning love. Nope, man, you were just Fuck. knocking. Man, you were just hitting every single one except... God damn it. No, I don't know it. I don't I All can't right. remember it. It is out on a limb. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's yes. great. Oh yes. man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, dude, <laughs> that is one of the best puns in the entire Isn't series. It? When so that great. dude is yelling Lucille. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, <laughs> and Buster thinks he's talking about his mom. To his mom, yeah. Lucille. Oh, and, and that leaves a seal biting his hand off. Oh, oh that's such a tragic moment, and it's funny at the same time. It's one of those moments where you're like, "All right, you know, I mean, you guys executed that really well, but we all saw that coming. Like, mm-hmm. come on, mm-hmm. uh, yes. of course, of course. What else could happen? Ooh. Oh my gosh." <laughs> All right, you ready for number three? Sure. All right. This is uh, the only episode of The X-Files directed by Alan Coulter. Fuck. Oh, dude, I didn't know Coulter did one. Dang. That's awesome, man. Huh. Season five episode. Season five. That's hit number one. Okay. And um, let me see. I wonder if it's easier to tell you the content. Oh, you know what? I'll give you some of the content of the episode. No, the oh, episode involved. Oh, I appreciate that. You're going to tell yeah, me just a course. little something about just what Just a little about. bit. Just a smidgen. Yeah, a smidgen. yeah, yeah. Uh, the episode involves a biblical legend concerning the Nephilim, um, who are children of women and fallen angels. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That stuff's really interesting. Nephilim shit. It's like some mm. wild apocrypha like mm. side you know side joints yeah side joints biblical yeah. fan fiction <laughs> <Exactly>. basically <laughs> that stuff is so weird though so creepy um is it called all saints oh you're so close oh it's First all souls there you yeah. go yeah okay okay there you yeah. go yeah yeah not Good not job, a great man. episode honestly it's like a, I don't I don't really remember too much of the fifth season of the X Files. Well, the fifth season was weird. It's like the three, two, three, and four are just an incredible run for the show, mm-hmm. and season mm-hmm. five is a precipitous drop off in quality, in my opinion. And the reason is they were filming season five and filming the movie 
back to back. I think okay. they filmed the movie and then they immediately went into that season. And it was like, okay. they, they cut a few episodes from the season, but it's still like 20 episodes. And they said <sighs> shooting that right after the movie, everyone was just exhausted. They were totally yeah. spent. And then they were trying to create the season that would work up to the movie that would come out the uh, the summer after. And okay. uh, it, it, you can just tell, it was just such a gigantic strain Doesn't on that work. show. I mean, what a crazy thing to even do that, to be like, yeah, hey, I know. this show's going great. Let's make a movie out of it that's going to come out in theaters over the summer on the yes. break between seasons. Well, that's right. I remember Chris that now. Chris Carter, man, what a maniac, dude. Oof. Yeah, and I, I hope we get to, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your personal good. favorite season of The X-Files, man? I think it is... It's hard for me to choose between two and three, and it's been yeah. a very, very long time since I've seen The X-Files. But I, if I remember, I, I'm thinking back to when I first watched it, I was a, a big fan of either two or three. Yeah. And I can't remember. Yeah, but it's hard for me to choose between the two. Three has all those great Darren Morgan episodes, like uh, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, you know? Oh, that's right, yeah. man. Yeah. Oh, that's such an man, amazing episode. Up. I'm going to end up going back and watching this. Man, all this talking about TV makes me want to go back and watch all these shows. I know. Same, same. See, for me, I love season two. I really, really love it. I think it's it's just, it's such a, it's a perfect example of like classic X-Files. But for Mm -hmm. me, I kind of hold a, a secret torch for season four, which I think is much less popular as the, the, absolute best episode yeah or sorry the absolute best season of that show but season four the production values were so high and that season is so dark there are so many fucked up things that happen to those characters it gets Mm. really really like extra weird and creepy in season four Mm. And to me, that's like the X-Files achieving its perfect form. At its best. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's okay. that's the season with that episode, Home, that was only played oh, once. Oh, boy. One time on air. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And banned Ooh, forever from forever. the Fox yep. network, which yep. is just so wild to think about now with all the like fucked up gross shit that's been on network procedurals <laughs> that they aired that episode one time and right. they're like, we can never <laughs> show never again. again. <laughs> so funny in light of like you know hannibal is now on television or has been on television and was on, on nbc television. yeah 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 Oof. but yeah. uh yeah i mean that was definitely at the time i imagined that episode was just so insane like it's unspeakable yeah you couldn't even think of putting that on uh, network television for real for real any final thoughts on the episode man it, one thing it kind of reminds me of is um uh it it reminds me oddly of silence of the lambs because Jonathan Demi was such an amazing director at just like getting two actors in a room and having mm-hmm. them just exchange energy, just have mm-hmm. one be up and the other be down and have it flip back and forth. And all of these moments where it's like Clarice and Hannibal, she's mm-hmm. just pushing him where she's like, oh, let me remind you that you're in a cell for the rest of your life, that you're not free. And then he can turn in just a moment and say something that just rips all of her defenses away, brings her right back to some childhood trauma, and they just trade back and forth that energy. Yeah. To me, sometimes that is like the greatest mark of really excellent directing is someone who can set up these situations where actors just get to like go head to head. And this yeah. episode is such a beautiful example of that too. It's, it is 
chock full yeah. of that the entire way through. Mm-hmm. That's it's all it is, and it's great. Yeah, man, for sure. Oh, how about you? That's all. Any any you know what? Last words? No, I just really enjoyed taking this one apart, and I think yeah, the next two are going to be a lot of fun as well. Oh man, I got so many thoughts on the next two. Can't wait. Yeah, dude. So uh, I guess to wrap things up, uh, I'll just say we hope you'll uh, rate, review and subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using. And uh, we'll hope you'll tune in again next week for episode 12, Isabella. And uh, we'll see you then. Peace. Peace. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.